enlighten us by telling us the facts, 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 the facts. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For 91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware, I'm Bill Humphrey and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on January 2nd, 2017 and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Rachel and Jonathan joined me to discuss the challenges and opportunities of municipal and state progressive legislation in the Trump era. That's coming up in just a moment. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from WVUD.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. It's Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me again in studio this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. And joining me on the line from Idaho is uh, Rachel returning again. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start out by talking this week uh, about the potential role uh, that cities can play um, while Republicans have control of the full federal government, Um, but partly uh, what role they can't play as a result of some uh, unfortunately incisive forward thinking by Republicans uh, in the run-up to the present years, which I'm sure they will continue to uh, fix uh, any gaps that they've left out. Um, And this relates to the issue of uh, states preempting cities. Um, So uh, I wanted to start out by talking... I want to begin this this topic by talking specifically about preemption, uh, and then we can talk about what what we hope cities could be doing, uh, either where that hasn't happened or if that had not happened in some states. Um, Rachel, can you explain to us uh, what the concept of uh, state preemption is? Sure. So uh, if a municipality uh, decides to... Uh, ban something such as plastic bags in grocery stores or smoking in bars, the state legislature can then convene and put a ban on the ban. So um, effectively undoing all the, all the good work that those cities have done and, uh, and imposing the state will on the localities. And those are sort of minor examples that you were giving just for right. convenience. But like, what are some of the bigger things, the, the bigger ticket items, whether they're social or economic issues, uh, that Republican state legislatures have tried to prevent Democratic-leaning cities from doing? Okay, so um, the major big one is Charlotte, North Carolina, passed a, a quote-unquote bathroom bill where uh, transgender individuals could... Um, 
could use the bathroom that complied with their gender identity versus their biological sex. And in retaliation, North Carolina state legislature kind of just detonated a bomb um, where they not only banned the bathroom aspect, but they also, I think, banned uh, municipalities from setting their own minimum wages. And I think they even got rid of some protections for women. So it was just this whole big, terrible, anti-progressive cluster. And this was, again, as you said, sort of most notable nationally uh, for the uh, gender identity rights uh, suppression. Mm -hmm. Um, That's certainly, I think, what got the most attention from groups like the NCAA and that sort of thing. This is not the first state where this has happened, though. And as you said, there was this huge component uh, related to minimum wage increases because, of course, many cities have a higher cost of living than the surrounding Mm -hmm. rest of the state. So uh, what are some examples of of other states where they haven't necessarily focused on the the social issues, but more the economic issues? Um, So there are many, many states that have put uh, bans on minimum wage. uh, set in, in localities. So I think uh, another major one is Alabama. Um, Birmingham uh, tried to increase the minimum wage to $10.10 10 by 2017. Um, and then Alabama put a, a ban on that. And uh, that's currently going through the court system. Um, uh, let's see. I, uh, Flagstaff tried to set a, min- a minimum wage in Arizona. And uh, I think they also tried to ban changing employee schedules uh, without prior notice. Yeah, that's and, a, that's a key issue as well in yeah. the service industry labor activism right now. Is these yeah, uh, as and I think we've talked about it on the show before, but these issue of contracts being assigned where like your hours uh, are totally at the will of the employer. You work part time. You know you don't know if you're going to get any hours that week. You don't know when the hours are going to be, and you can't plan for anything else in your life and you can't get a second job easily. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a huge uh, issue, which I think a lot of like unions and so forth were hoping to organize around at the city level. And then now you have states like Arizona uh, preventing that. Um, uh, What was the most recent state that sort of uh, did this? Ohio. So uh, in December, uh, they uh, passed legislation to block Cleveland's minimum wage raise, and they were trying to go for $15 an hour. Um, so, yeah, it, it, the House approved the measure 55 to 40 along party lines, of course. <laughs> now, I think but. like a lot of these have definitely been happening in very Republican states. And I think that, unfortunately, that has led to a situation where Um, You know, states like Oklahoma, for example, I remember reading about that, that they were passing a a state preemption on Oklahoma City uh, and possibly also Tulsa. But I think it was just Oklahoma City, which is, I think, somewhat more liberal. Um, And the state said no. And there wasn't that much backlash, I felt like. And I think the, the point that we're trying to make partly here is that this is this is essentially a model legislation issue. Um, so we've seen this in many states where they don't have to do a ton of work coming up with a new law. Like it's all the, the work has already been done for them by staffers at the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, which is associated with the Koch brothers and various other, you know, sort of hard libertarian conservative type pro-business interests. They just 
come up with legislation that can apply for each state and then someone introduces it and it goes through. Um, and I think like the examples that you've been mentioning and that we've been mentioning so far um, are in Republican states or Republican leaning states with heavily Republican legislatures that have then um, like reacted to some thing that happened in a city like you know whether it's charlotte or flagstaff or oklahoma city or birmingham or cleveland that was a reactive piece of legislation um but you're from idaho and i always like to go back to that example because it is such a sort of like conservative state that is associated with conservatism um in in many different ways what happened in in idaho uh with regard to state preemption uh i believe it was last year uh, McCall, Idaho, which is a resort town um, that sees a lot of business from skiers and other tourist industries, um, they tried to pass a legislation or a, what's the word <laughs> ordinance? There we go. Uh, that would raise the minimum wage, and it failed. Um, not too surprisingly, given that it's Idaho. Um, but in reaction to that, the state legislature. Uh, did pass a ban on uh, municipalities or counties raising the minimum wage. And they also preemptively banned uh, plastic bag bans um, or other takeout containers uh, was the language used in the bill. Um, and I don't think anybody tried to ban ban that. Uh, they They just kind of got the model legislation and decided to pass it, so... Yeah, yeah. So that's that's another serious concern here is that the states don't even have to have undertaken an effort or the cities rather have, don't have mm -hmm. to have undertaken the effort to pass anything. They just the states step in and, and ban this uh, right off the bat. Um, uh, Jonathan, I know, wants to talk a little bit about one kind of counterexample to this narrative, uh, also in a negative direction. <laughs> um, but it's it's a a not the same as the Republican states versus the Democratic cities. So, yeah, walk us through that. Yes, yeah, so the one example I was going to highlight was Rhode Island, um, because with a lot of things, um, things like this that we're talking about of the preemption laws at the state level and the passage of ALEC model bills, we typically think of them as happening in red states or purple states that have now managed to have, like, Republican trifectas, where Republicans kind of ram the things through because of their newly gained or long-held majorities, yada, yada. However, unfortunately, as can be the case with a number of things, it can happen in Democratic states, too, just given the fact that, particularly when you have states that are very blue and Democrats become what I would call like the natural governing party, Democrats also become the party that the business class goes to when they want something done. And that happened a few years ago in Rhode Island. Because Rhode Island, which is a deep blue state, has a heavily Democratic legislature and had it, a Demo I believe he was still Democratic-leaning independent. It was Lincoln Chafee at the time, since this was in 2014. Yeah, he may have registered yeah, Democrat Democratic while in, I, while in the office. Yeah, because I can't remember yeah. if he formally changed uh, at that point, or had, had already changed or not, but, but effectively uh, a Democrat by that point. But it was... in. Snot, uh, preemption law against Providence's raising the minimum wage uh, was snuck in and as a part of a budget amendment in June of 2014 in, in, in Rhode Island by the ranking member on the finance committee, um, or let's say the, the chair, sorry, the chairman of the finance committee, 
uh, so like a Democrat kind of doing the bidding of kind of let's say the Chamber of Commerce and other business groups in Rhode Island, and it kind of was able to sail through. Uh, with there were protests, but not nothing meaningfully, nothing strong enough to block it. Um, if you're interested in reading more about this, I can refer to an article. Uh, well, Jonathan will give me the link, and I'll put it up on the that episode page. Um, and there's a few other links as well, like uh, prospect.org has a huge rundown on sort of the strategy behind these preemptions and many examples of where it's been uh, implemented. And um, then one, one state, no, I can't, I don't know when this happened, but Oregon has one as well. Oregon is currently a Democratic state, although it's, we think of Oregon as being bluer than it really is. Right. So I don't know if when it passed, it was currently passed of under what conditions it passed yeah. but it's not but it's not a deep red state right um and i know that there's various examples too of like the i mean we've talked about it before but like th- some of the worst democrats in the country are in new york state and um yeah. there there's been this persistent in addition to having the problem of having a partially republican legislature mm-hmm. for no reason uh, you also have the Democratic governor constantly battling the Democratic mayor of New York City now yeah. over just stupid turf wars. And some of that, I think, has manifested in, like, state revisions to city ordinances or, like, state curtailing of that. Yeah. You also have in general that there will be issues of, like, battles over, but kind of, over, almost like, say, territory that comes even within the... Con- like, in Massachusetts, that there are various things, like, for example, Boston... The number of city councilors in Boston for a number of years have wanted to be able to redraw the political boundaries of the city because we have in Boston, we have very outdated precincts in which the voting precincts can vary really widely in size. So some of them are very small and will like never see a line and some of them like some of them are just massive, but they don't have the right as a municipality. The state has the to state has to grant yeah. the state has to grant them the authority they would have to like pass like a kind of a home rule or thing from the legislature to give them the right to re-precinct themselves. Uh, And that brings us to a sort of bigger philosophical issue here, um, because we're not obviously not just talking about, you know, oh, Ohio's in the news or North Carolina's in the news, things like that. Um, And and that that gets back to the issue of uh, what the what the role of the cities are versus the states versus the federal government. And it's something that I've thought about a little bit and talked about sometimes on the show in, in years past. I was not envisioning, obviously, total Republican control at the federal level, which I think encourages this kind of looking creatively lower down. Um, but I had already been thinking of it because of this, you know, uh, I, we didn't even talk about, for example, and we, we can, maybe we'll circle back to it about like Austin, Texas, battling the Texas yeah. legislature. That's a common phenomenon. Um, and, you know, or Salt Lake City versus the government in Utah, you know, because there are these very democratic leaning states in or at least significantly more democratic leaning states, uh, cities than than the states around them that they're in the, you know, especially capitals, but not exclusively. Um, you, you, you know, I had wondered what could we do to sort of empower those people, uh, in those cities. And obviously that's like not a popular proposition among republicans uh they want they very much want to be able to overwhelm the uh more liberal areas of their states um but this kind of goes back to uh, a couple of different concepts uh one is the 10th amendment federalism 
um, which you know is is was primarily intent. It's part of the Bill of Rights. It was it was primarily intended to be uh, about states' rights uh, more than anything else. Uh, I don't think they were necessarily thinking of it as as cities exactly. Um, it's because it's the the wording there is the powers not delegated to the United States, meaning the federal level, by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively. And then there's or to the people is thrown in there as an additional point, which is kind of vague. Um, but you could potentially interpret that as referring to, you know, we'll say local control. It doesn't have to necessarily be big cities, um, but certainly a lot of the framers who were involved in the Constitution were kind of the people who would become model de Tocquevillian American citizens, you know, with local town governments meeting all across New England and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, the, the other concept is subsidiarity. Uh, which is a principle that I think comes originally from the Catholic Church, but then uh, has been heavily, heavily adopted into the European Union. Um, and so, Rachel, I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about what that principle is uh, in, in general or in the EU or whatever, uh, and then we can talk about how maybe that should or should not be applied uh, within the United States. Okay, so subsidiarity um, is a principle by which if an issue can be resolved at the local level, it should be. So, like, if a city wants to ban plastic bags, it should be up to the city whether they ban plastic bags or not. And uh, the state or a higher body doesn't really have a say in it. And how, 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 is, it, how is it used in the European Union? Jonathan? The, this, this might not be to the nitty-gritty of uh, kind of how it functions in the EU, but it basically just tends to relate, it tends to relate to the delegation of various authorities so that there will be things that would, let's say in the EU, there are things that are still powers that you will keep at a local level or at the level of a province or whatever, the kind of equivalent. Or, or kind of, nation state member country, yeah. Well, no, I was going to go up to yeah. that because like Germany has states. Right. Right, so like, for instance, Germany. And the, Belgium has, you know, Flanders and Wallonia. Exactly, so, so you have like your subnational. So you have municipal, right. then you have your very subnational, then you have at the national level, and then you have the EU. And it's basically saying that there are different tiers of what powers exist in each case, and that you don't, that you shouldn't automatically go to the higher, go up to the top. So not every issue needs to get taken up by the European Parliament. The European Parliament should be taking up issues that cannot be resolved or properly handled by nations themselves. And the nation should be dealing with things that cannot be properly resolved at the subnational level, et cetera, going down. Yeah. And this has been very controversial in some countries like Spain, which is something that gives people like me pause when thinking about how to apply it potentially in the United States, because what happened in Spain was so... The formation of Spain basically takes place over several centuries of merging together these like kind of city-state kingdoms yeah. into like a couple super kingdoms and then one big kingdom mm -hmm. and you know certain sort of like portugal be never merged in right that yeah. they were speaking a dialect of the same common ish language sort of thing in the peninsula but they ended up becoming their own kingdom and their own separate country um but then you know under the dictatorship there's total centralization mm -hmm. uh and then after the dictatorship falls apart you know after the death of franco in the 1970s and you actually bring back the monarchy uh but you know it's a constitutional monarchy um they said, okay, as you know, part of the deal here to keep Spain together is that we're going to give certain areas mm -hmm. some level of autonomy. Uh, and there were certainly areas like Catalonia, for example, that 
had maintained a lot of higher autonomy and resistance against the dictatorship and have, you know, still more of a cultural separation, dialect separation, things like that. Um, however, they didn't specify, oh, this is just going to be for Catalonia or this is just going to be for the Basque region or something like that. They said that basically any region, city-state type region within Spain was going to have the same ability to, like, basically file a petition to get their own sort of local autonomy, local government control. The problem with this is that it ended up getting to the point where things that probably should have been handled at the national level, rather than the subsidiary principle of saying, well, not everything has to be, okay, sure, but there are some things that probably would yeah. be more effectively or more cost-effectively handled yeah. at the national level. Those ended up being tossed down to the regional level, including places that had never really had their own sort of mm -hmm. independent, autonomous, uh, you know, regional authority, and these... It, it, it added up to a tremendous cost. So you end up with like each uh, region in Spain having its own like milk regulation authority. Well, that's probably not necessary. I mean, what is the, what's the practical distinction between milk regulations in one region versus mm -hmm. another? Like, why is that not a nationally standardized thing? Um, and, you know, that of course becomes like a self-sustaining jobs program where you have these giant civil services at the regional level and no one wants to get rid of them. The, uh, the, uh, the secondary problem, which doesn't apply as much in the United States as it does in Spain is that the consequence of this is that Catalonia happened to be a region that not only wanted to separate for cultural reasons, but also for economic reasons, because it's much wealthier than the rest of Spain. Um, and in order to finance, like, so Catalonia has all the money it needs basically without f central help uh, to maintain its regional authorities, these other regions in Spain are not as wealthy and they require tr essentially tax, tax transfer. transfers from the central government, which means that the taxes are going to be increased on places like Catalonia, which fosters further resentment toward the central government. And then this, you know, creates a, a self perpetuating cycle. So obviously like there's a limit to how much yeah. we want to go in the direction of having cities handle everything. Right. Because we don't necessarily want to have like every city becoming a, like massively expensive self-sustaining bureaucracy of its own that goes completely counter to the wishes of the state because we do live in a republic of states and we have to like respect the fact that the states do have a higher authority uh in in the united states but i think there is a balance that is that is somewhere between that extreme versus like just preempting anything that the cities want to do mm -hmm. and and um you know, it, it is concerning. I like my sort of vision for a leftist subsidiarity principle or a leftist federalism within the United States is that the the cities should uh, the cities should go as far as they can, um, you know, according to local conditions, if it's an economic issue or go as far as they can if you're talking about human rights in terms of securing human rights, like ideally that would be how you would structure it. So that's sort of a, a, uh, you know, in Rawlsian terms, that's like your, your, your minimum, despite it being a maximum essentially that you're going for it. That's your, that sets your like new threshold for like, we're not going to let anyone fall below this economic standard. We're not going to let every, anyone fall below this like recognition of their fundamental human rights standard. Mm -hmm. And, that ends up going further than the states, but hopefully then becomes a model for the rest of the state to come along later and say, oh, you know, it wasn't so bad that they raised the minimum wage. Or maybe, you know, like 
I know there's controversy about whether or not the minimum wage should vary based on like locally mm-hmm. versus just being consistent across the board. But like China, for example, has a system where it's v- very tailored with all kinds of algorithms and stuff like they calculate very elaborately what the minimum wage in different places in China is going to be according to local living standards. But the other thing is more importantly, like these issues like transgender rights or gay rights or whatever, because, you know, there's things like non-discrimination legislation in terms of employment mm-hmm. hiring. Uh, I think that was also in the Charlotte ordinance, yeah, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So you couldn't fire people for being gay, which is pretty common power in most Southern states. Yeah. Even um, outside of the South too. Outside of the South as well. But I think it's like a pretty solid block yeah. there. Um, you know, the, the idea here is that you would like, you know, hopefully they would say, okay, Charlotte did it. The world didn't end. We should also do it. It's the right thing to do, you know, and ideally, you know, in a, in a perfect world, the whole of North Carolina wouldn't need that like model step in the middle. They would just say, okay, this is the right thing to do and we'll do it, but we're not in an ideal world. So this is like a highly technical, pragmatic way of advancing both economic progress uh, and social inclusion rights and, you know, human rights, things like that. You want to advance those, um, but they have very savvily, like, shot this down by passing all these preemption laws. Um, you know, and I, I, I kind of wanted to get the, the thoughts from both of you. Uh, I'll start with you, Rachel. Um, you know, uh, so we've talked a little bit about kind of the principles of subsidiarity in the EU. We've talked about the federalism in the United States. You're living in, you know, Boise. It's a Democratic-ish leaning city within a very Republican-leaning state. Uh, if you didn't have a preemption law, what kinds of things do you think that like Boise could be working on that would be beneficial to people in Boise, but also potentially lead the way for the rest of the state? Um, I think uh, that minimum wage increase would definitely improve uh, living conditions. We have a huge, I think Idaho is one of the highest percentages of minimum wage workers. Um, and uh, we do have a housing, a low income housing crisis in Boise. Um and we don't really have any plans to improve that. So a minimum wage increase would definitely help that. Um, paid sick leave. Uh, it's been passed in some cities in, across the country. Uh, Boise hasn't really seen any of that yet, push push for that yet. Um, but I think if we could get a good groundswell of support, that would be something that, that would definitely benefit Boise. Um, and also, Idaho has a local option tax ban. Um, I, Boise has a terrible, terrible public transportation system. Um, we we only have what we have because uh, Senator Mike Crapo uh, got some earmark federal funding um, to establish it, and it's it's limping along. But if we had the option to to raise taxes locally, um, we could improve that and make it actually usable. Um, so those are all things that we could do to vastly improve quality of life here. It certainly seems like, you know, why is it the state's business whether or not the city can raise taxes for a project within the city? Exactly. Briefly, though, um, any sort of human rights, social inclusion type provisions that you could see, you know, activists putting through in Boise if there weren't a state prevention on that? Um, Boise is one of several cities in uh, the state that does provide uh, protections for both uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, it's it's an interesting mix of cities. 
uh, some in northern Idaho, which is very, very conservative, small town, rural, um, and some in eastern Idaho, which is very interesting because that is like the Mormon stronghold. So it's interesting to see the cities that have passed these protections. Um, but we've been trying for 10 years, I believe, to get a state uh, protection for LGBT people. And um, I, this year is no different. We're going to we're going to try to add those words to our Human Rights Act. Um, so it, it's definitely a patchwork, and I would love to see the rest of the state follow suit so there isn't that, that spotty protection for LGBT people. Uh, Jonathan, what are some of your ideas for what, you know, ideal world we could have cities be working on that the states would hopefully not be preventing? Well, one thing that actually just reminded me of is insofar as things that are done at the municipal or even multiple municipalities acting together was now I can't remember if this went through and kind of ultimately but I know that there are have been uh, legislators in Massachusetts pushing to allow for allow for regional um, ballot, regional ballot initiatives on transportation funding since the MBTA is underfunded and suffers some massive debt owing back to the big dig and a hostility of legislators to to raise taxes. Also, Baker's financial decisions in the 90s before he was governor. And be, so so what people want to do is to be able to allow municipalities or groups of, or kind of clusters of municipalities since transportation isn't something that really affects just one city or town itself, but it affects multiple, like kind of across a region to allow them to kind of collective, to collectively do ballot initiatives to raise funding for for their transportation system. Which I think they already have multi-city ballot initiatives for, like, technical schools yeah, so and, like they, they, and they, tech, they, right? So. Yeah. So you do have that in other areas. Yeah. Um, but this, I think, was specifically on, for transportation. So that's law. something, yeah, that's something to be uh, pushing as well. Um, and then uh, before we end this segment, uh, the, the big concern that I think a lot of people, especially liberals, will have uh, about the, what we're talking about here is kind of the opposite direction, right? That the the more we're pushing for cities to essentially go rogue relative to their states, are we going to have more conservative cities and towns kind of taking things in a renegade direction that we don't like? Honestly, like my my sort of philosophical perspective on that is the idea of living in fear of what the conservatives are going to do with your tools does not like they're going to do terrible things with anyway. the yeah any with whatever tools are available to them and they're already doing it now yeah they they are mostly that's kind of an academic question because they already control so many state legislatures and governorships that the bigger issue is them blocking the stuff we're talking about the good things that cities could be doing it's a lot less of an issue you know that some town of 1500 people is going to pass you know they're going to codify some discrimination into lo- into law or something like that that kind of a town is probably already unofficially openly hostile to people who are different. Some conservative or libertarian thinkers sometimes will criticize me for like basically saying that cities should go above and beyond setting a minimum wage higher than the state minimum wage. And they say, well, why can't a city or town set a lower minimum wage than the state, you know, minimum wage. And this is not like an equal proposal that we're making here we're making a very specific ideological and philosophical proposal that we're saying that the state should be the absolute minimum of anything Mm -hmm. 
and that the cities should, by definition, go above and beyond that. If the state passes a, a plastic bag ban, you shouldn't be able to, as a city, say, oh, no, actually, uh, we're going to allow plastic bags or, you know, more pertinently, something like smoking, right? If, if a state passes a smoking in restaurants ban or something... I don't think it's appropriate for a city to just go, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have those public health concerns here, and we're just going to do whatever we want. This is not an equal opportunity directional proposal we're making here. This is very much saying the state should be the absolute baseline, and the uh, the city should be the beacon, the, the sort of striving in the maximal direction uh, to improve society. Yeah, I was going to look, particularly just thinking of that in terms of the, like smoking and restaurants framework is that if st- cities were attempting to allow people to do that, you could easily talk about it on uh, infringing upon people's rights to public health, where it's something that like the state should be setting a floor when it comes to kind of your social and economic rights. And that if places want to ex- go beyond that floor, because that's what you can do with, when, with the establishment of a floor, you should be able to do that, but you can't like dig under. And what's what's crazy to me is how many states do have sub minimum wages, and I don't know to what extent that they're enforced, that that they're 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 enacted legally, but no number of states do have sub minimum wages. All right. Well, we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit more about um, going one level higher in subsidiary and talking about things that can be done at the state level. Like we'll we'll start talking about it this week. I would imagine that it's going to be a topic of discussion that continues. Uh, in in coming episodes ahead. Uh, So Arsenal for Democracy, we'll be right back from arsenalfordemocracy.com and WVUD. In just a moment, please stick around. You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in studio with me is Jonathan, and on the line from Idaho is Rachel. Uh, So we've been talking so far this hour about uh, the authority or lack thereof of cities to craft uh, progressive and leftist legislation on social and economic issues. Um, I also want to talk about uh, things that could be done at the state level. Um, There are certainly some states that have Democratic legislatures Some are even lucky enough to have Democratic legislatures and Democratic governors, and some of them have good Democratic governors. (laughs) A very few, very few at this point. Um, But uh, there there are many things that I think that states could be doing in theory, or at least if you're not in power, your state Democrats should be making the case to do those things if they are returned to power in the future. Um, And then in some cases, you know, it would because it's that's not going to happen anytime soon. We would want the, you know, the major metropolitan areas to be doing these things because it is important to remember we have a number of major metropolitan areas in this country uh, and even just municipalities uh, alone that are larger than some of our state populations or at least very competitively (laughs) sized against them. Um, so, uh, again, some of these could be economic issues. Uh, some of them could be social issues. You could have various, uh, gun safety measures, things like that. Um, environmental legislation, I think is going to be critically important. I know Jonathan, you wanted to mention something briefly about that. Yeah. I just wanted to comment that considering the fact that over the next four years, environmental, in particular, it's climate legislation on the federal level is not, well, the legislation hasn't really been happening much at the federal level, but in the executive kind of the... The the, pres- the Trump administration will be trying to roll back or not enforce things that they sh- that they are legally required to enforce when it comes to environmental protection and climate change, which just makes it extra important for states when they when you actually have 
kind of state control that would make this happen, or, or cities. And as Bill noted, like, kind of New York City would be a great example of a city that itself is as, as large as, if not larger than many states, to take a leadership role when it comes to climate policy. Since, since you can do, again, climate policy is something that is global in nature, so there are a lot of things that have to ha happen at a higher level, but you can take, a, take major strides on the city and state level that help, that help kind of keep, think, keep things moving forward and hopefully s provide model legislation for yeah. higher levels as well. And I think that's a critically important point because I know that like what we're looking down the barrel of right now is an extremely bleak situation, particularly but not exclusively on climate change. You know, whether it's environmental, uh, whether it's uh, rights of immigrants, whether it's LGBT rights, whether it's issues surrounding health care. Things look pretty bad at the federal level right now. And, and you know, the sort of subsidiary, the, the, the challenge with subsidiarity and federalism and things like that, whether it's in the U.S. or Europe, is like you can do things at the local level and subsidiarity in the EU context dictates that you should do things at the local level if you can. But we all like acknowledge that some things could be done better at a higher level. Climate change, obviously a great example. Best scenario international climate treaties next best scenario you know national climate yeah. action you know one country acting by itself but the entire country it starts getting a little bit dicey when you go below that because you can have that sense of like well what is it going to matter if you know massachusetts mm -hmm. or the state of new york or you know the state of new jersey or the state of pennsylvania what is it going to matter if these states just one by one take action on these now fortunately those states that i mentioned those are part of like a regional greenhouse gas initiative already although it's not the strongest but that's you know that's something that could be strengthened and again if you're coming at it with the pessimistic attitude which is very understandable of like well what what difference could this possibly make i mean yeah to be brutally honest probably it's not going to make as much anywhere near as much difference as we need to to get done but if there's going to be any hope at all mm -hmm. of rolling this back everyone who can be marching forward as fast and as far as possible on an issue like climate change has to be doing so mm -hmm. you know so whether you're a major metropolitan area uh, a major municipality, a uh, a large state um, with a democratic legislature, something like that. If you have the ability, I think that you should be going forward on as many different fronts as possible to try to uh, ameliorate, lessen the impact of uh, the Trump administration or protect populations in the case of like immigrants, things like that. I know a lot of cities and states have been considering various sanctuary policies regarding law enforcement issues surrounding undocumented populations. Um, there are things that can be done, and I think that they have to be done. I think it's sort of a moral obligation in the absence of federal action on these issues uh, that you, you have to be trying to do as much as possible. A lot of states are going to shut that down if you're talking at the city level, but I think that there's there's no harm in trying, certainly, because, you, you know, as Jonathan said, it could provide model legislation for the future. It could also get through. You never know. Yeah. Um, yeah. As well as the simple fact that, like, with when it comes to something like climate change, you 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 will always need policy happening at all of those levels at right. the same time. Even if you don't have it at the higher level that that you do need to have maximum effectiveness, because when you have a global climate treaty, you still need to enact mm -hmm. what what kind of the set of standards and which are agreed things, which will be deferred to the national level. Because at the end of the day, UN bodies will not be right, like kind of 
wetting the nitty gritty uh, of legislation. Yeah, contrary to what the you know Alex Jones conspiracy <laughs> theorists think, the 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 globalists are not actually writing you know legislation and sending black helicopter police in to enforce these things. But yeah, no. To your point though, like. New York City and Boston are both going to have to do climate action regardless. regardless. So they might as well be working on exactly. it, you know. And do it to the best that yeah. you can. Yeah. Um and I I think that's the attitude that we have to have. Unfortunately, like there can be situations where people take the necessary steps and and try to enact things and find themselves foiled uh by that and that is certainly a, a troubling situation in particular um and it w- we will definitely i think be circling back to this uh in a future episode but i am very interested in uh what ordinances uh laws and even state constitutional amendments can be adopted through ballot initiatives whether they're local mm-hmm. initiatives or state ballot initiatives um or uh, referendum campaigns. Certain states call them different things. Like in Massachusetts, for example, uh, a referendum is a highly technical term that only refers to a ballot question about overturning mm-hmm. something that the legislature has passed, um, which that's a risky thing that we need to be keeping our eye on as well. Um, and then there's uh, initiative petitions, which are basically a full-blown law that you pass at the ballot box instead of the legislative. And then there's also... Uh, constitutional amendment ballot questions. Every state has kind of its own system. And uh, as I said, in future episodes, I want to talk a little bit more about some ideas of things that I think ordinary people and activists should be organizing around. Um, Because you can get things through even in quote unquote Republican states like South Dakota. uh, You know, they the state legislature passed a law that was going to create a lower minimum wage for uh, 16 and 17 year olds. Well, those people don't get a vote, but 16 and 17-year-olds all over South Dakota organized and essentially override to reverse that decision and restore the minimum wage so that they had the same minimum wage as like an 18-year-old, and they were successful in that. That was one of the things that passed this year on the ballot, and in fact, as I understand it, um, every minimum wage ballot initiative uh, state level passed, uh, despite how bad things were going, uh, you know, for many other races, whether it was legislative races or uh, governor's races, attorney generals, obviously presidents, U.S. Senate, congressional, things like that. So there are things that I think you can get passed if you organize people. And the great thing is, like, you know... <sighs> There's a lot of things have been very bad right wing things have been put on the ballots in recent years in many states. And especially there's the lingering like recollection of how recently it was that they were putting on constitutional amendments about, you know, banning gay marriage and things like that. So a lot of liberals are, again, kind of a little bit leery of that. But as we discussed in the last segment, you can't live your life in fear of what terrible things conservatives are going to do because they're going to do them anyway and they already are Mm -hmm. so you have to use the tools that are at your disposal and the original progressive movement put in these tools Mm -hmm. so that people could you know work around their terrible legislators or work around their terrible governor or something and just go directly to the people and that was obviously very challenging back in the day but it's easier than ever i would argue to organize uh you know get your signatures in and get something on the ballot in many states. There's certain, uh, you know, there's variations on how that process exists. But that's the kind of thing that I would like to see activists doing a lot more of. Unfortunately, Jonathan, you can talk a little bit about this very briefly uh, before we're out of time. Um, 
we had something like this happen in Massachusetts mm-hmm. where the activists got the signatures together, carefully wrote a full law that was going to be implemented at the ballot box um, regarding the uh, possession, use, and sale of marijuana, and it passed. And then the legislature, well, not even the full legislature. Yeah, seven. They, yeah, yeah, seven legislators pulled some shenanigans on that. So could you briefly go over what happened there? Yeah, so what had happened a week ago in, Ma- in Massachusetts is that you ended up having a special session called that was attended by only seven state legislators, and they, vote, and they voted to delay the implementation of, kind of the retail part of the legalization of marijuana so that stores wouldn't be, open, wouldn't be legally able to open. So how many legislatures is, legislators is a quorum? Uh, they didn't need a quorum in an unless, informal uh, session. Unless somebody demands uh, it. Yeah, that was the thing. Uh, Anybody could have walked in and said, I object. They didn't do that. And then the only requirement is you have to have members of both parties present. So can you note that? Yeah, so what had happened is that, is that you ha- ended up having seven legislators in a special session vote to delay the, opening, the legalization of the opening of stores for distribution of, of newly legalized uh recreational marijuana by six months from january 2018 to july of 2018 prolonging the somewhat the limbo situation in which something is legal to possess but not legal to sale not legal to sell sorry not uh which creates obviously a number of kind of legal problems and prolongs the kind of the current mess uh in drug policy currently and it was done obviously in a flagrantly undemocratic way which you did have only seven present and unfortunately, that there's no requirement for a, a quorum is only required in anything when somebody demands a quorum call. So if nobody there demands that there be a kind of a roll call to see who all is present, and if you have enough people, you can pass. You can still do unanimous consent, which is if just effectively that nobody who is present objects. To me, this is very troubling because it's not just about this specific law you know it doesn't matter what your opinion is on marijuana legalization or retail or anything like that the issue here is that it's very similar and that's why i'm grouping it in this episode Mm -hmm. with the discussion of state preemption of cities it's essentially a legislative leadership preemption Mm -hmm. of a referendum initiative you know they wouldn't have been able to do this if it was a constitutional amendment but obviously no one was going to put a constitutional amendment to marijuana sales you know (laughs) ideally not some states that is apparently the only thing you can do there's no like you know, just straight up law that you can pass at the ballot box. You have to pass things as a constitutional amendment, which then gets very thorny to untangle later. Um, but, you know, I think that the the message that this sends when you do it through these sort of shenanigans and you don't even take it to a full roll call vote mm-hmm. for a revision is you're saying like, oh, don't bother putting in all that work on, you know, and then, sure, they didn't roll back all of it. They didn't try to suspend the the possession part of it, that's already taken effect. So at least from the civil rights standpoint, that issue has been partly addressed. Um, the bulk of it has been addressed at least. But as you said, they're now prolonging the confusing gray area by delaying the retail side, which wasn't necessary because other states had done it in a similar timeline. And it was a very carefully crafted piece of legislation. Moreover, the state le- uh, the state constitution in Massachusetts actually has a provision that says if the legislature is concerned that a ballot question is going to create some sort of, you know, technical nightmare or something, because literally anybody could write some, you know, horribly crafted piece of law or whatever, what they can do is they can 
draft an alternative law uh, and put that on the ballot next to the popular submitted question. Uh, and they chose not to do that. And so I'm not that sympathetic to the notion that, like, there was some technical issue that they needed to resolve. They needed more time or something like that because they could have they could have dealt with this earlier and they opted not to. Or they could have worked with the people who were, you know, organizing the initiative, whether or not they supported the initiative. I think that you should be working with people who are going to put things on the ballot Uh you know, within reason. I mean, there's certain extreme conservative things that there's not really any point to necessarily working with them. But I think you should be working with with the groups to make sure that whether or not you support it, if it does pass, that it is as as well crafted as can be. Yeah. And I would just add to that, and to do that in the public view, because that's one of the other problems with how of how the legislature uh, have enacted their delay is that there was no public discussion. Yeah. So we had a long public discussion and campaign about whether or not we wanted to legalize recreational marijuana. People said yes, and they voted for a specific way to do that. Granted, people voted for it with wanting to see various parts of it changed in the future, et cetera, whether it's like the tax, tax element, other regulatory elements. But that should come as a part of a kind of a reason, discuss, like active, lively debate. Yeah. That would that would happen, not just the legislature running things through. I've heard from some that, that some of the advocates did sign off on that, but that doesn't help anybody because no advocacy group itself represents everyone. And that at the end of the day, the public was shut out of the process entirely. Right. And, and you know, we don't, like, we can't go say, we have no way of saying, like, my state rep did or did not support this because they literally were not present. Yeah. And they may not have even known about it. Yeah. You know, we don't know. I'm sure some of them did, but I think that it, had there been more uh, caucus awareness, we'll say, I think some Democrat probably would have wandered in to object to this. But again, we have no way of knowing. We have, we have no way of knowing because you, there was no transparency in yeah, the process. Because they weren't necessarily um, around. Or there's, that also gets to issues of the way in which a caucus is run, so as that people could be like would be threatened if could be threatened into not showing up as well. Now, Rachel, in Idaho, is there a, there's a state referendum process, I'm assuming, or no? Uh, yes, and I, I believe they just made the process harder. Um, it used to be you had to get a certain percentage of voters, period, from the whole state. So you could largely pet- get your petition signatures in Boise or in the metropolitan area. But I think they just changed it so you have to get a certain percentage from a certain number of counties. So now you there's more of a push to go to those rural counties and try to get uh, signatures for initiatives that might not be quite so popular in rural areas of the state. So I mean, I think that's what Massachusetts has, right? At least for the constitutional amendments, I know that you have to collect a certain number of signatures from different areas mm-hmm. of the state. It, you can't just get them like all in Boston for a statewide <laughs> yeah, referendum. Yeah. So like, I understand why they did that. It's a, it certainly it creates its own challenges, but you mm-hmm. know, that that's within reason, I would say. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, you know, that that's the, the concern is when, when something like that happens in Massachusetts, I think that the signal that that sends is like, 
not just in Massachusetts of like why bother putting together legislation and putting it through on the ballot, you know, which is sometimes your only recourse if the legislature is just not going to do anything about it. But it also sends a message to places like Idaho where, you know, maybe you try to pass it, you know, organize a referendum to repeal that preemption law, you know, mm-hmm. so that in a, in you're going to run a campaign all over Idaho saying that it's, you know, it should be uh, like local, like county rights or town rights or something like that. Right. And that mm-hmm. might actually be kind of popular but if there's a possibility which i'm guessing there probably is because most legislatures operate relatively similarly where the idaho legislators could just you know a a group of seven of them from both parties or whatever could come and meet you know Mm -hmm. at the you know right after the november election you know and and say uh no actually never mind like we canceled this thing that you spent millions of dollars and countless hours organizing people all over the state for you know, but we're just going to do unanimous consent votes secretly to like suspend it or delay it for several years or something like that. I mean, you know, that, that that's like an incredible deterrent, I think. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's an accident. I think when they do this kind of stuff, it's not out of some enlightened, like we have to correct this, this legislative overreach by the people of our state. I think it's very clearly intended to be like, this is our territory that you're infringing on. We make the laws here and don't you dare organize and put in all this effort on this unless it's, you know, corporate stuff that we like, you know, they seem very comfortable with that. They don't tend to mess around with that. Um, But, you know, I don't know what it says in the Idaho constitution, but I know in Massachusetts it it uses similar language like with that 10th amendment language where it's like, you know, it's reserved to the people. So it's, yeah, the legislative power is the state legislature's power, but it is also reserved to the people if they go through the constitutional channels of organizing these initiatives. So that's like my huge concern with a lot of this. Jonathan? Yeah, the one example of just in terms of taking it to an extreme is when the Massachusetts legislature repealed the clean elections law, which if I remember correctly had been passed by ballot. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the details of that. My understanding, like I have heard legislators explain the justifications of why they say that they repealed that law. I, I find it kind of self-serving. I know that they have compelling explanations that they have offered. Uh, the biggest problem that I have with uh, with the, the reason that I've heard for that one is uh, that it was going to be too easy for Republicans to set up front groups, you know, that would qualify for public funding. And I'm just like, fine, then set up Democratic, quote unquote, front groups, because they were still requiring it to be like on some level a popular, like I think you had to get like you could form various PAC type organizations with like 25 people or whatever. Hey, that's 25 more people than a lot of these PACs have. So, (laughs) you know, you know, some of them are, are one person sets it up or whatever. And yeah, I just whenever they whenever they do these repeals, it's like I get the I get the point they're making about like we shouldn't legislate through the ballot box ideally. But we also have legislature, which I'm sure is similar in Idaho, which like doesn't want to do much legislating a lot of the time or they'll just come up with excuses to not do legislation. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it, it's it's a really silly example, but I think a girl tried to get a state amphibian declared and it took, I believe, seven or eight years for her to do that just because they did not want to draft a bill and pass it. Yeah, so I it, remember it, something it. like that happened in New Hampshire. <laughs> This is just the this is the thing they you know these legislators managed to manage to slam through certain types of legislation no problem at all but you know when it comes to these other things 
Um, you know, and a great example where where I don't think there was a revision was like Massachusetts, and this is to Rachel's point earlier, organized a uh, sick leave law, right, that they were going to put through by ballot initiative, and they went through the channels, they got it passed, it has taken effect, I don't think the legislature stepped in to revise it. That's like a great thing that leftist organizations should be organizing around or progressives or whoever, social justice activists, you know, you can organize around that, you can get it passed, but you have to have that like security that it's not going to be reversed arbitrarily afterwards. All right. Well, uh, this was, I think, a good and productive discussion about sort of the role of cities and states under sort of the Trump administration years. Um, there's been various other discussions. There was a long medium post by activists in the U.S. and Spain talking about like how cities could be networking with each other. And we'll post a link to that on arsenalfordemocracy.com. Basically, the idea that it's much easier if you're working together in cooperation uh, with other cities and states, knowing that they're in this struggle together. Plus, it's like the counterpart to the ALEC operations where you get these model legislation ideas um, for your state laws and your city ordinances. So that's great. Um, but, you know, the this is, I think, a balanced discussion looking at like the challenges with some of this strategy and the opportunities um, and what needs to happen to move forward along this dimension. Um, and as I said, I'm hoping that in future episodes, we'll talk more about some ideas, uh, you know, whether it's wages, whether it's clean elections laws, whether it's education, uh, you know, fixes, uh, whether it's public transportation, um, health obviously is going to be a huge concern that that's a that used to be something handled at the state level health insurance issues that's going to be a huge issue depending on what happens with medicaid and with the affordable care act exchanges um so there are any number of things that people could be working on uh to to use the the tools of their direct democracy and their and their the unique like local sort of system, the local and state level system that we have in the United States where everything isn't centralized and it is spun down ostensibly for people to have a say locally. Um, so we'll talk more about that in future episodes. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me uh, this week from Idaho to talk about this. Thank you, Bill. It was a pleasure. And Jonathan, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a fun discussion. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFDRadio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from ArsenalForDemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at ArsenalForDemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.